We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the portion read, particularly the latter part of the verse 10 and the beginning, or the chapter 10 and the beginning of the chapter 11. We may read from verse 9 in chapter 10 just now, And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and this holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months, and so on. Now you will note the words in verse 1 of chapter 11 that was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Throughout the book, we have been following John and his visions. What he has been told to look at. But here he is told to do something. And it is a continuation of what he has been told and directed to do in the previous chapter, the chapter 10. We, the last day we were on the subject, we identified the mighty angel the angel of the covenant, the angel of Jehovah, who sets his feet upon land and sea, claiming complete authority over all. And with that authority, he gives to John a little book. He possesses, he has in his hand, a little book, very different to the scroll that had seven seals. This is but a very little volume, as it were. And uh, we are told in verse 8, John says of chapter 10, The voice which I heard. Now, if you follow the chapters back, you will find that it is Sometimes since he actually heard that voice, but it is now returned to speak to John 
to tell him what to do. And he is told that he is to go to this mighty angel and he is to take the book, the little book, out of his hand. Now, John obviously does not own that book and he obviously does not uh, claim it as his possession. He receives it from the mighty angel. I went, he says, verse 9, unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. Now it is quite within the right of that mighty angel to either give that book or not to give it. And when John is asking, give me the little book, then the mighty angel must consider John, who he is, what the uh, purpose of all these visions are about. Is he worthy to receive from the mighty hand of this mighty angel this little book? Give me the little book. What do we read that the angel said? Verse 9, he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. When he gave it to John... He told him what he was to do with it. He didn't tell him, go and lay it up somewhere and treasure it up. Remember how privileged you are that you receive this little book from me. You are unique. You are uniquely favored. You are uniquely blessed because no one else possesses this little book. No one else has been favored with such a grant. What he tells John to do is take this little book and eat it up. He is to take this little book into, as it were, his very soul. This book, its contents are to become, as it were, Part of him, he and that book, become absolutely united, as it were, it becomes one. When you took your breakfast this morning, before you ate it, perhaps it was in a bowl or it was on a plate, it was on the table, you and that meal were two different identities. But when you consumed your breakfast, it became part of you. And that's what here John is to understand. This book is to become part of me. This book and I are to be so united that we are, as it were, one. It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Now it is very obvious that before this book or John 
will have any impact or any influence upon anyone else. This book has an effect upon him. What is John saying? When he ate it, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. Its taste was good. It was sweet to my taste. And then he says, as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. You can see that the content of this little book has a personal effect upon John. Now, this is important, as we shall see shortly, very important, vitally important. Because what does the angel then say to John? Verse 11, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, John is an old man. And uh, physically speaking... And in his circumstances on the Isle of Patmos, he personally is not going to be, as it were, engaged in the kind of ministry he'd previously engaged in as an apostle. Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And we need to understand what the angel is actually saying to John here. That John is to, through these particular actions, regarding the little book, and then he's given a reed like unto a rod that he is to measure the temple and so on with. These actions are to be instructive, prophetic actions. You will find throughout the Old Testament that again and again, uh, when God was speaking, and remember what Hebrews tells us, God who at sundry times and in divers manners speak unto the fathers by the prophets. How did he do it? How did he speak to the fathers by the prophets? What kind of a ministry did the prophets engage in? Yes, they spoke, and yes, they wrote. But they also dramatized again and again the message that was to be conveyed to those to whom they were sent. And you have, for example, in the just a couple of examples, uh, there are many, but we'll just refer to a couple in Isaiah, uh, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 20. You have there the prophet Isaiah instructed to do certain things. Verse 2 of Isaiah 20, At the same time speak the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go... And loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot, 
And he did so walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians' prisoners and the Ethiopians' captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, and so on. So you see, it wasn't just that Isaiah was go, uh, sent, go and say this, proclaim it, broadcast it, but act it out. You see again in the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, uh, the 13th chapter, you see another similar incident where Jeremiah is told to go and perform certain uh, actions. Verse 6 of, uh, or verse 1, we might read from verse 1 of Jeremiah 13, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go, and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord, and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. It came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates and digged, and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it, and behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem and so on. So you see here that uh, the prophets, when God speak through them, this was one of the manners in which he speak, one of the methods of conveying his message. The prophets, sometimes they spoke, sometimes they wrote, sometimes they dramatized their message uh, from God to the people. Now here, John is instructed to do certain things, just like the prophets had done in the past. Verse 11 of Revelation 10, he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The actions, John, that you are being directed to do are intended by God, by the mighty angel of the covenant, to be instructive. Now, who is John writing to? 
the seven churches in Asia. The Gentile churches established under the gospel in Asia. So John is to take these actions and the churches in Asia are to be informed of them and to be instructed by them. Now the first thing that we've already noted that John does, he's to take the little book. And he is to eat up the little book. He is demonstrating or illustrating by his action how the church's witness is to be conducted. In the prophecy of Haggai, you have there the prophet, and he was prophesying to encourage God's servants building again the walls of Jerusalem and restoring the temple after the return of the captives. And we read of Haggai, then speak the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. He didn't just say things. His whole demeanor, his very spirit, his attitudes, everything about him was in that message. The message had a control of him. The word of God had taken entire control of Haggai so that We read, then speak the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. He didn't just speak it, he spoke in it. He was part of it. Sadly, when there is a contradiction between the life and the convictions of the one who's speaking, it becomes sheer hypocrisy. But this is how John is to be, and this is how the church's witness is to be in a dark day that is fast approaching. When we come to the verse 14 of chapter 11, we read, The second woe is past. Woe with three woes. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. Now, when we come to verse 14 of chapter 11, the second woe is past and the third is hastening behind it. So this chapter 11, its contents are uh, demonstrating uh, for us what this woe, this second woe, What it is about, its effects upon the inhabitants of the earth, including the church of Jesus Christ. Now, John is to take this little book. And like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel that we looked at in the past, he is to eat it up so that it becomes part of him and he is bound up with it. Now, why is he to do this? 
because thou must prophesy again before many peoples. And your authority, or the church's authority, largely depends on the connection between you and that little book. Now, when we were singing there in Psalm 110, I wonder, because I'm sure most of you expected, we would return to the book of the Revelation. How many of you, when we were singing that psalm, had your minds going as you sang it to the chapters in Revelation that we've been considering? The mighty plagues that were slaying men, a third of the three smitten, a third of men slain. What were we singing in Psalm 110 about kings attempting to withstand him? What was he doing? He was smiting them and he was afflicting them. He was demonstrating his mighty power against them and over them. And we shall see something in this chapter of the effects of the ministry that progresses and proceeds even in these darkest of times. These two witnesses, they are hated. Why are they hated? Why are they persecuted? Why are they put to death? Because what they are declaring, their witness, is tormenting. It isn't saving men. It isn't converting men. It's tormenting them. The Word of God, where do we find today the Word of God tormenting anyone? Amongst those who profess to be the people of God, it's all this airy, fairy love, everyone, gospel we've got. Jesus loves everyone. Jesus is so kind. It doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't matter what sins you commit. Jesus loves you in spite of them. Here we have the witness of the church of Jesus Christ in this chapter. And it didn't make the church popular. It didn't make God's witnesses popular. They eventually kill these witnesses because they are being tormented by their witness. But why is their witness so effective? Why is it so powerful? It is because of the little book. It is what's in that little book that is tormenting men. Now what torments 
a lot of people today. I was, I've been reading a, a book, uh, regarding the, uh, Anglican Church, the supposed, uh, Puritans, the fundamentalists of the Anglican Church in Australia, and the vicious attacks by Anglicans, female Anglicans no less, attacking the diocese of Sydney, the Sydney diocese, because of its stand against homosexuality and same-sex marriage and uh, such things. Why are men and women so tormented by the teaching of God's Word? It, they can't just dismiss it and say, oh well, people can believe the Bible if they want and uh, so long as they mind their own business, we're not bothered. It torments them. They just will not give up. They will fight and they will argue and they will do everything in their power to change the church's witness and the church's culture and the church's testimony and the church's theology because the content of the little book torments them. They just can't let it alone. You see, that's the thing about the Word of God. It does bring about a response from those who hear it. You remember what the Apostle Paul said about the gospel that he preached? He said, it is a sweet savor before God, whenever he preached it, it was a sweet savor before God because God approves of it and he delights in hearing his son exalted and his gospel in its purity proclaimed. But Paul didn't say, well, everywhere I, I have heard men boastfully say, Every time I preach, I have converts. Every time I preach, I expect converts. Well, I don't know what happened to poor the Apostle Paul. Because he said when he preached, that there were times when he preached, some believed, some did not. But he also said when he preached, and he preached for the divine approval of God, he said that what he preached was a seaver of life unto life to some, and it was what? A seaver of death unto death with others. I tell you, my dear friend, if you're not converted and you're sitting there listening to God's word week after week, and you're not Turning in repentance to Christ, you need to fear. Because the gospel hardens if it doesn't soften. 
And it is a savor of death unto death. And you see this in this very chapter 11 coming out clearly. But John is to take this little book and he is to eat it. Now the seven churches, like ourselves, we read them of this prophecy of John. The nations and all their tongues, all their kings, they read. What did he do? Just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, he was directed to involve himself in certain actions. So he goes, and you observe him, he takes the little book. Now, naturally, you don't eat books, do you? Well, the dog might, but you don't. And uh, what do you do? You read it. But you take its content into your mind. And it may affect your thinking And it may even change your thinking and your attitudes and your conduct. And here are the seven churches receiving this message, reading, and John took the little book. And he's one of the apostles. He represents the apostolic church. What is the church to do? It's to take that little book. That little book that is so mighty and so powerful in its influence. That little book has altered history again and again. That little book has changed lives. That little book has established the church. That little book is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Now then, John is told once he does this, he's given something else to do. And there is a connection. We're not to think, well, he took the little book, fair enough, he read he, he added up, it was sweet as honey to his taste, it made him very bitter inside, because of what he was declaring, end of story. No, he does something else, and it is connected. And there was given unto me. Now, he didn't go and ask for this as he was asking for the little book, but he was given it. There was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. You'll see the three things he's to measure with this uh, rod. He is to measure, first of all, the temple of God. Secondly, he is to measure the altar. And then thirdly, he is to measure them that worship. I wonder what God thinks of our worship. I wonder how it comes up to God's measure. 
measure the worshipers. Not the mere church attenders. But measure them that worship. Therein, in this temple, at this altar. But the cord which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. There's a part of the temple complex, the court of the Gentiles. And those who are in that court as Gentiles have no warrant or right to further progress into the inner sanctum, as it were, of the temple complex, reserved for the Gentiles or the uncircumcised, measure it not, nor measure them, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months, because these in this outer court will tread under feet. They're connected with the temple. But they're there to trample under feet. Forty and two months. But coming back to the measurements. Connected with John's eating of the little book. There was given me a reed... Like unto a rod, it was obviously a measuring implement. John is told that he is to measure things with this rod, this reed-like rod. He is to measure the temple. Now you might well ask, why on earth would John be directed to act out this scene, measuring the temple. How would he do that? Why then measure the altar? Were there not other furnishings in the temple in the Old Testament and even in the great temple of Herod? Were there not other articles of furniture? Why is he here directed to merely measure the temple and then measure them that worship therein. Now, first of all, if we, and we've been stressing this again and again, the importance of John's knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament prophets and their manner of ministering, so that John would not be startled by certain things such as this, that he's directed to take the little book and he's directed to measure the temple and so on, because this was not anything uh, new. If you go with me just now over to the prophecy of Ezekiel and the chapter 40, you'll see there that Ezekiel, addressed as the Son of Man, is told to do a similar thing under 
obviously different circumstances. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse uh, 2, and the visions of God, he brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a high mountain. Now, he wasn't actually brought into the geographical land of Israel, but in a vision. Verse 3, he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand, and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. He's there with a measuring reed, just as John has been told to take. Verse 6, Then came he unto the gate which looketh toward the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad, and the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad, and every little chamber was one reed long, and so on. So you see that... Ezekiel was to measure the temple precincts, what for? It was because God had a purpose that he was going to bring his people back out of captivity to the land of Judah and he would restore them, Ezra, Nehemiah and others. They would build the temple again. They would set up its gates and they would restore the priesthood. So the Lord said, Ezekiel, measure. When you're going to build a house, we see them up around where we live, men coming in with measuring tapes and they measure out an area where they're intending to build a property. And it's a preparatory work. And God was saying to Ezekiel, I'm preparing for a great reviving and a great reformation. Measure then to see what I'm going to do. Measure to see what my glorious purpose is. Now you have again in the prophecy of Zechariah in the second Chapter, verse 1, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And again, here's another prophet and he's given this vision of someone with a measuring implement to measure the work of God in reality. And you have it again in Amos. You have these depictions of persons measuring. But that is one form of measuring, and we will see how important it is to understand there were two types of measuring. The psalmist in Psalm 23, we were singing it earlier, and what was the great comfort of the psalmist. What does he say? Even though he would walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he would fear no evil. And why? What removed the fear? Because, he says, 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, two uh, implements that were the property of the shepherd. And he used them both in his care of the sheep. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now, how did the psalmist draw comfort out of the knowledge that God, his shepherd, had a rod and a staff in his possession and he made use of them. If you look with me back at Leviticus, the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 27, you'll see how these implements, particularly the rod, was used by the shepherds and indeed was used by God. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 32, we read there, just to get the connection, verse 31, And if a man will at all redeem out of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod. Passeth under the rod. Why was the psalmist so comforted by the rod and the staff of the shepherd? Because he knew spiritually he passed under the rod, he was measured or he was counted among the sheep. They passed under the rod to be counted. The shepherd measured his flock as they passed under the rod. One, two, three, four, whatever. He measured his flock and he would say, Twenty sheep passed under the rod. I counted them one by one. They passed under the rod. Again, you have in Jeremiah, uh, in the chapter 33, you have the Lord again speaking through the (coughs) prophet uh, of a day of Restoration and Reformation, verse 12 of Jeremiah 33. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Again in this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all the cities thereof, shall be an habitation of shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down. And the cities of the mountains and the cities of the vale and in the cities of the south and in the land of Benjamin and in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah shall the flocks pass again under the hands of him that telleth them. You see, you ask, uh, the shepherd becomes the teller. And he tells 
30 sheep, 40 sheep, whatever, passed under the rod. I counted them all. I measured the size of the flock as they passed under the rod, and I tell them or tell the number of them. So here's John, and he is to perform this action, measuring the temple of God, as Ezekiel, as Zechariah, as Amos had seen in their visions. But he is also to measure the altar. And he will do that in a similar fashion. But he is also to measure them that worship therein. They pass under the rod. They are told, their number is told. Now the significance of this action is very important. Because in this chapter 11, we move into really terrible times. The second woe, the second woe that is to be experienced by the inhabitants of the earth. Who is going to survive it? Who is going to come through it? Who is going to be recognized as the real sheep of Christ's flock? These fearful times will be times of purging. And these times will be times of testing. And you might think, how will the church survive it? How will anybody come through it? Because Jesus himself had said, because iniquity shall abound, what will happen? The love of many will wax cold. Because iniquity will abound. Did Jesus say, well, the godly will just ignore it? The godly will recognize it and they will keep clear of it. The love of many shall wax cold. You will see a coldness. And you will see the diminishing of the love of those who claim to love Christ. Because of the powerful influence of a godless society upon it. And this is clear in this 11th chapter of Revelation. But who will come through it? Measure them, John. Does John think, well, will there be anything to measure? Is there any point in measuring? Just as God told Ezekiel, you measure Ezekiel. As he showed Zechariah and Amos, the man with the measuring line. What was God saying? Don't despair. Don't be discouraged. Measure. Because I will work. And I will build my church come what may. And I will build my cause. And I will preserve it. And I will preserve my people right through it. And I will preserve my witness 
and my temple. Therefore, measure the temple of God. <coughs> now you will see in the context, very familiar with uh, uh, John, no doubt, would have been familiar with the churches in Asia. This temple is seen here as a symbol, of course, not the material temple. John is in the Isle of Patmos. He's going to have mighty difficulty in trying to measure the temple in Jerusalem when he's in the Isle of Patmos. It was very obvious that's not what he's to measure. He is to measure spiritually the spiritual temple. You'll see that word appearing down in verse 8. Regarding Jerusalem, the city, the apostate city of Jerusalem, verse 8, their dead bodies shall lie in the street, and the great city which spiritually, whatever it is geographically, whatever it is nationally or internationally, John, we're looking at things spiritually here. So this city, It might be attractive. It might be influential. But spiritually, it is called Sodom and Egypt. And John might think, well, bad enough as things are, I wouldn't like to call it that. Well, so that there be no mistake, then what does the angel say, or what does the angel show, John, rather, The great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. You can't make any mistake. There's only one city where he was crucified. And this is apostate Jerusalem, spiritually speaking. So what is John to do? Measure the spiritual temple. You know you're familiar with the material temple. You're familiar, John, with its precincts and the various courts, the court of the woman, the court of the Gentiles. And you know the significance of each department or compartment. Now, John, rise and measure the temple of God. Now what did Jesus say before he was crucified? He cleansed the temple, he cast out the money changers, and so on. And he said, Make not my house, which is the house of prayer to all nations, you have made it a den of thieves. You've destroyed it. You've defiled it. You've defiled its worship. You've defiled its order and so on. And then what did Jesus say? Your house is left unto you. The glory has departed. The glory that was there in David or Solomon's time, the glory has departed. 
It's now left to you desolate. Does John say, well, what am I going to measure for? Didn't Jesus say it's abandoned now? You can keep it. Measure the temple of God. What did Jesus say about himself? Destroy this material temple. But in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his own body. But then you see he takes into union with himself other members of that temple. And you have, for example, in uh, the uh, scriptures, you have first Peter as one example. Peter is uh, there speaking of the relationship between Christ and the saints of God. In verse or chapter 2 of First Peter, he refers to the saints of God as lively stones. What did Jesus say of the earthly temple? These great stones, one is going to be cast, they're going to be uprooted, they'll be cast down, every one of them. But there's the temple of God, and it will be built with living stones that no one will be able to destroy. Ye are living or lively living stones built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, and so on. But if you go over to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, there in the second chapter, what does Paul tell the Ephesians? These Ephesians belong to one of the seven churches in Asia. What does he say to them? Ephesians 2, verse 20, you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Now, John, What you're going to see will be frightening. It will be terrifying. You're going to see what an ungodly world will do to the gospel. You're going to see the fearful opposition from those who are feeling tormented by what's what's in the little book. They're not going to like it. They're not going to appreciate it. They're not going to come and say, tell us more. They're going to object. And they're going to seek to slay God's servants. But he says, John, I'm going to have my temple in the midst of it all. John, you measure. You measure the temple, the spiritual temple of God. Don't be thinking, John, the temple is going to perish or that it's going to be diminished in its size. 
I, John, am going to build my church. And my temple is going to be more magnificent, more glorious, more spectacular than the great temple of Herod. John, measure it. And send to the churches in Asia to encourage them. Send to the godly this encouragement. And then he is to measure the altar. Now is it not strange in the surface of things? There's only one altar. In the Old Testament temple, there were two altars. There was the altar of sacrifice. And then there was the golden altar of incense. Now before the priest could reach the altar of incense, he had to come to the altar of sacrifice. But you see, in the spiritual temple, the altar of sacrifice, its work has been completed. Christ offered up one sacrifice for sins forever. But the altar of incense is appearing on several occasions in this book. The golden altar of incense. Measure it. Because I am going to have a people who will be offering up prayers, who will be coming with their praise from the altar of praise and adoration. However dark it will be, oh, John, Men will gnash their teeth against the gospel. They will gnash their teeth against the messengers who preach it. But John, measure the altar because I am going to keep a people who will be praising my name, who will be rejoicing in my salvation and then measure them that worship that measure them that worship therein. John, pass them under the rod. What will you discover, John? You've ran out of numbers. It's a great number that no man can number as they're passed under the rod. And they're counted And the teller, the glorious king of Zion, says they're innumerable. But then you see what John is measuring is the covenant community kept and preserved. What does Jesus say about his sheep that pass under the rod that he counts as his own? The Lord knoweth them that are his. What does he say of them? I give unto my sheep, what? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. No matter what circumstances they're in. They shall never perish. They'll be opposed. They'll be hated. They'll be persecuted. But they shall never perish. And what does Jesus himself say? As he passes his sheep, Under his rod, you go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, to the great 
high priestly prayer when the Savior is addressing his Father. And what does he say about his sheep? Those that the Father has given to me, says, I have kept, verse 12 of John 17, those that thou givest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. I've passed them under the rod, and they're all there. What a glorious event it will be in heaven when they're all there. And they're all passed under the rod of the great divine shepherd. And they're all there. There's none missing. You see again in the chapter 18, you see John again recording the Savior's words and Chapter 18 and the verse uh, 9 of that chapter, uh, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. John, measure the worshippers. Did John think, well, would that not be a bit presumptuous? Would we not be better to wait until these great calamities are past, and then discover who's come through them and discover who's persevered to the end. Write to the churches, John. Encourage them to trust me, to believe me. Measure them because there'll not be one of them lost. Come what may. What a blessed message John has to send to the churches and to send to you and me in the manner in which the old prophets had done. Take the little book. Take the measuring rod, John. Measure because my word will stand and I will have my people while others are gnashing their teeth, I will have others at the altar rejoicing. This is the hope. This is the security of Christ's church and his people, even through the darkest of days. But may the Lord bless his word. Let us conclude. Most holy And eternal God, we thank thee we have thy word. We rejoice that we can take it as a lamp unto our feet and as a light unto our path. And whatever is happening in the world around us, we rejoice that God will have his people, that he will have his witnesses, and he will have a people, uh, none of which will ever be lost. Oh, have mercy on those who as yet are rejecting thy word. Forbid that they would be hardening under it. Forbid, gracious God, that thy word, the word of the gospel, would become a savor of death unto death to them. Blessed to us all. Pardon us, receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.